Hello and welcome to Radical Simple Living Podcast. This is Series 2 and it's Episode 14. And as usual, I'm talking to you from the kitchen of my homestead here in Smallland, southern Sweden. It is snow-covered outside. It has been snow-covered for so many months now that uh, I can't remember anything else. It started snowing in November and we're now middle of January and it's still covered in snow and we've still got our coldest months come in February. So snow is what I'm putting up with and what my cats and my puppy here are also learning to live with. Um, a lot of people who may not live, that was my husky puppy just agreeing with me there, a lot of people who don't live the kind of life I lead, who maybe live in a city, in an apartment, in a uh, housing where there's lots of other people around, might get the idea that people like me that live in the middle of nowhere spend the winters sitting by the fireside, drinking coffee and reading long 19th century novels whilst, uh, you know, uh, warming our toes. That would be nice to think of, but it's not like that. It's actually one of the busiest times of year. There's always things to do, and all of those things are made slower by the snow. You need to chop wood. You need to get wood in. You need to constantly stoke fires. You need to clean fire grates of ashes. You need to get ashes out. You need to move wood from one place to another quite frequently. You need to take animals out, you need to feed animals, you need to constantly mop floors because of animals. And more than any of those things, you need to shovel snow. You need to seriously shovel snow pretty much every day. Um, if I don't shovel the snow away, I don't get any mail because the uh, post office here won't deliver if they have to tromp through snow. I'm not blaming them, I understand it fully. But you constantly have to keep the snow at bay and so it's nothing uncommon in a day when it is snowing to clear the snow once in the morning and then by the time afternoon comes to have to go out and clear it all again. So all in all, by the time you do get to sit down by your fireside, you're far too tired to delve into a 19th century novel. You're more likely to uh, watch the news and then go to bed at the earliest possible opportunity. Not that watching the news isn't a perilous event in these days, is it? Every time I switch on the news, I'm faced with more gloom and more despondency and more terrible things happening every day. And it's something we also have become acclimatised to over time. Now today I want to talk to you, I always talk to you about simplicity because the title of this podcast is Radical Simple Living and my aim isn't to make lots of money or sell you products, quite the contrary, I don't want to sell you anything at all. But what I do want to do is to explain to you my experiences of simple living and persuade you that by simplifying your life you're not only helping yourself lead a more fulfilling life but you're also helping the planet and helping the community you live in. So, so far, I hope this has been a positive message because I believe in simplicity. I believe so many of the world's problems can be contained by people trying to live a more simple life. 
But today, for a change, I want to look at it from the other point of view, and I want to start talking about the dangers of complexity. I would like today, with the illustration of some research and some thoughts that other people have given it, introduce to you the idea that complexity isn't something you might want to avoid because it's nice to avoid it, but complexity is something that is actually making your life worse. That the more complicated your life is getting, the worse your life is getting. And by cutting your way through these layers of complexity, you will find the real you underneath. And it might be uh, an unhappy experience in the process of cutting away from your ties to complexity, but it's very worthwhile. Now, first of all, what do I mean by complexity? And um, I'm going to read you a quote in a minute which kind of explains this better than I could. My co-host there, the husky. Huskies don't, well, this husky doesn't woof ever and doesn't howl much, but does have sort of low-level grumbling and rumbling that goes on pretty much all the time, especially when she's trying to get to sleep and I'm busy talking, which is what I'm doing now. Yeah, what is complexity? Complexity really is something that you could be doing fairly simply that for external reasons you've decided to do or you find yourself pushed into doing in a more complicated way. Now, why have you been pushed into doing it in a more complicated way? Well, all sorts of reasons, partly because you may have these ways imposed upon you. Your employer, your partner, your family, um, your the place where you live. If there's technology built into your apartment, somebody else presumably decided that that technology was going to be a good thing. For instance, uh, once upon a time, somebody would knock on the door and you would open the door. Or not. You had that choice in the old days. Nowadays, you might have some electronic system where somebody has to be bleeped in and somebody has... And I understand why people want to do this, especially if you're living in a what you perceive or may in reality be a dangerous city. But it does add a level of complexity to your life. When I was living on the Welsh borders, I lived in a nice sleepy village. Nothing very much happened occasionally. If anything did happen, it was probably me doing something that everyone else would. I remember once going to put up a new fence and I was standing outside and I put the first nail in the fence. The first nail went into the fence. I don't usually bang until 10 o'clock in the morning. I get up at 5 o'clock. I don't usually stop banging until 10 o'clock. And I put the first nail in the fence and I turned round and there was a, a neighbour from round the corner who said, oh, I wondered where all the banging was coming from. And I thought, OK. Um, anyway, in this sleepy village, we had gates and people would open the gate and go through and close the gate behind them. Now, what the gates do is they stop people randomly wandering into your um, front garden. They keep any pets or animals at bay. And they offer some method of defence. You can presumably bolt your gaze if you don't want anyone coming in at all or do all sorts of things like that. More often than not, the gate is a symbolic boundary between you and the rest of the world. That's no problem. New people moved in in the village 
and decided to fit a high-tech electronic gate. Now, previous to fitting this gate, the, an old farm gate had existed outside this property, and the old farm gate was held in place by a piece of agricultural string, the kind of rope that farmers use. It's nylon nowadays, but it's quite tough and does the job. And uh, the rope was made into a loop, and the loop held the gate closed. That was no problem. The new people came and moved in, and they had a really high-tech gate. They had people come up from London to fit it. Heaven knows how much it cost them. And they fitted this gate, and the idea that was when their car drew up, the gate would automatically swing open. Or when one of the people living in the house, there were only two people, walked up to the gate, the gate would automatically open because of something on their key fob. And they had this fitted and there was demonstrations and there it was. It was a gate you couldn't see through and a gate you couldn't see over easily. I could see over it because I, from my top floor I could happily see over the top of the gate. And they had it fitted and the technicians from London packed up and went away and they were presumably delighted with their purchase. But what happened was that the gate broke. The gate didn't operate. It rained so much. It's at Welsh borders, presumably... The post slipped, the laser alignment was de-aligned and all of a sudden the gate wouldn't open or close properly. And it was to my great delight that I saw within two weeks of having it fitted, they had a piece of agricultural rope holding the gate closed and when they wanted to go in they were releasing the rope and going back in. That pleased me on all kinds of levels which I can't begin to describe to you. In the village I live in, at the moment, here in Smallland, um, a year ago, somebody purchased a small 1930s built bungalow um, towards the edge of the village. They don't live in it, I presume they're here a couple of weeks in the summer. Um, I don't know. But they have surrounded this bungalow, entirely surrounded on all four boundaries around it, with electric fencing. Top-notch, high-quality electric fencing. Why? This is small land. You can leave your doors open here. There's nobody here. Nobody's going to travel this far to steal anything. But they've done it. It's totally out of keeping with the village and totally pointless and a minor irritation because obviously if people are wandering by with dogs or with small children, they have to cross over to the other side of the of the highway to make sure that the children or the pets don't touch the electric fence. Why do people do these things? I don't know. This quote that I'm going to give you is from Mark Boyle. Now, if you don't know Mark Boyle, he's the man who tried to live a year without any money and wrote a book about it and earned lots of money from the book, I think. And then he tried to live without electricity for a year or without modern conveniences for a year, which was a, a rather more interesting experiment, I think, and did quite well out of that too. And this is something he wrote. So I've, I, I've quoted this a little bit back in series one, but it's so good I'm going to do it again now. Here's what he says. Open quotes. This way of life I have now adopted is often called the simple life. But that's entirely misleading. It's actually quite complex, made up of a thousand simple things, 
By contrast, my old life in the city was quite simple, but made up of a thousand complex things like smartphones and plug sockets and plastic. The innumerable technologies of industrial civilization are so complex they make our own life simple. What I think people mean by the simple life is uncomplicated essence of it all. And yes, there is a timeless simplicity. I found that when you peel off the plastic that industrial civilization vacuum packs around you, what remains couldn't be simpler. Healthy food, things to be enthusiastic about, fresh air, a sense of belonging, good water, purpose, intimacy, a vital and deep connection to life. The kind of things I did without for too many years. End of quote. Now notice in his nice little explanation of, of, of why what we think of as simple, like switching on a light switch, is in fact just at one stage in a very complicated process. But he also says he didn't realise he was doing without all those good things at the end until he gave up the complexities of life. Because I think that what complexity does is fool you into a situation that you're living comfortably. But how much comfort do you need in your life? A lot of people are lured into complexity, not because they deliberately choose to, but because somebody has told them that it's going to be more convenient. Lots of people have given up. I live in a house with um, 1908 um, clay stoves in most rooms that are wonderful things, absolutely wonderful and I use them, and they're going to be good for another 100 years. They need minimal repairs now and then, um, and they are very economical with fuel, and they store their heat wonderfully. They're wonderful things. These things were built in 1908 because most people in Sweden heated their homes with wood in 1908. And I live in a village which used to have active wood mills in it, so presumably there was always a good supply of free firewood. What could be better than that? appropriate technology because what is the only fuel about wood what do we want a really efficient way to burn that wood to warm our homes and to cook and to heat water and all those things that's fine along came the 1960s and all of a sudden people were persuaded uh, this this goes along with the electrification of southern sweden it would happen quite late in many areas but people were then given the idea, well, if you rip out your wood-burning stoves and replace them with electric heating, it's going to be much easier and much more convenient, and your life is going to be so much better. Now, the point is, the wood was free. If it wasn't free, it was very, very cheap. And the electricity in Sweden has never been cheap and gets more expensive all the time. Not only that, virtually nothing ever goes wrong with a uh, one of these clay ovens, uh, clay stoves. You need to clean the chimney or have the chimney cleaned once a year and you need to be very careful you're using well-seasoned dry wood. But that's the only thing you have to worry about. With electric heating, it goes wrong. There are power outages. There is equipment that develops faults. There are times when they break. And somebody has to come repair them because they're too complicated for people to repair themselves. And above all, you have the complication of paying the electricity bill. 
And if you pay the electricity bill, you've got to find money. And in order to find money, you might have to work longer hours. You might have to do something you don't want to do. You might have to suffer hardship in other areas of your life in order to pay for the electricity to warm the house, a house that was previously warmed by a, a very simple method that you could have carried on using. That's why people accept complexity. Many people used to carry around in a pocket a little notebook and they'd write things down in. I don't, but I do have one on my kitchen table here that I write down all sorts of things in. That's fine. Many people put these in electronic forms and then have to store them on a cloud somewhere and then have to use passwords and then forget their passwords and then the cloud doesn't work or their phone doesn't work or something. All I need to do is flick through the book and find what I need. So... I would urge you to explore your life for things that are complicated and then think about how things used to be done before they got so complicated and see if that works for you. You could have a trial and say, right, instead of using my phone for everything for a week, I'm going to use a pocket notebook and a pencil and see if that works better. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised how well it does work and how very easy it is to go through and cross things out when they're no longer relevant. And if you're the kind of person, I, I once worked with somebody that kept a ledger and they used to walk around with this great book and everything that happened to them, every meeting they went to, everything they had to remember, every shopping list, everything went back in this ledger. And it was a very good way to do things, I think. It wasn't an enormous ledger. It was one you could carry easily. But there we go. Last week, I saw an article um, uh, on the web, it's a Psychology Today article. I don't think it's published in Psychology Today, but it's a, it's a blog from um, Psychology Today. And it's written by somebody called Dennis M. Clausen, who's Professor of American Literature and Screenwriting at University of San Diego. I've never come across him before, although he has written several no novels, I believe. And I like this article for one very simple reason. It's the first article... I have read in years that I agreed with every word of. I read this and I thought, this, this man is talking very good sense. And I'll give you a little flavour of what he had to say here and then I'll give you a link to it at the end of the, of the podcast. Uh, he starts off by saying, quote, I am concerned with the possibility that dysfunction in institutions, politics and the complicated ways that we are required to do everyday tasks creates a despairing sense of chaos in all areas of our lives. If so, we are the product of the dysfunction that surrounds us. Now, so far, the going is good, isn't it? I, I believe he's right, and I've said as much in these podcasts for uh, the couple of years I've been doing them now. The next uh, paragraph does really strike home. He says, Political dysfunction has become so common, it feels like we are watching parodies of actual government. Political actors appear to be auditioning for roles far above their competency levels, yet they rail on in the strained, over-the-top dialogue, creating more dysfunction in an already dysfunctional world. Right, I think you're beginning to get the flavour of what he has to say there. And he has lots more to say about um, 
politics and he has lots more to say about uh, technology generally. And one of these things are, he says, big tech, it's quoting again, big tech, which has created many time-saving gadgets to simplify mundane tasks, has often complicated our lives to the point where we must devote much of our time to the learning and relearning of new systems and apps. AL-generated writing programs created even more dysfunction when they forced teachers and professors to pretend that they were evaluating student essays and students had to pretend they wrote them. <laughs> right, um, there we go. He goes on. Why, in the search for simplicity, do we inevitably create more complexity? Is there something in human nature which can't accept that we may have reached the apex of technological intrusion and other distractions in our lives? Perhaps we should step back and take a close look at who we are and why we exist in the first place. Before making a futile attempt to answer those questions, here are examples of modern dysfunction in everyday life. I visited a fast food restaurant that incorporated standalone computerised menu for customers, seemingly trying to escape the few quiet moments away from their computer-dominated workspaces. They ignored the computerised menu and lined up instead by the counter to place their orders. The computerised menu stood nearby, unused like a redacted suitor at a company dance. He goes on, I don't want to read the whole article to you, but it is very, very good indeed. And I have to, uh, I have to say I agree with him. Uh, and he goes on then to talk about financial interests. And he said, what happens when powerful financial interests decide to exploit Theroux's fame and commercialise Walden Pond, thus destroying the very simplicity Theroux found in that small, unpretentious tree-lined body of water? Fortunately, those with less modern impulses fought off the intrusion into Theroux's memorial into a simpler lifestyle and saved it, at least temporary. Is there something in human nature that will inevitably complicate everything until it creates dysfunction? Is that how great civilizations throughout times rise and fall? Is that why the ancient Mayans and Egyptians were trying to communicate in their stone art? Well, there we go. His overall thesis is that in an attempt to simplify life, we have made it very, very much more complicated. And in making it more complicated, we have made it dysfunctional. We have made government dysfunctional. We have made communication very dysfunctional, I think. And we certainly make the everyday acts of going to the shops or going to visit a doctor or a dentist or a vet or anything like this dysfunctional because it has become so automated that we no longer feel that we are part of the of the process. We feel like an intrusion into the whole business. I felt before now as a customer in a shop that the shop isn't really there for the customers. The shop is there so IT companies can market their new technology and stock control can be done at a touch and there's no need to involve any human at all. 
And I often feel that the person, occasionally you see the old person wandering around in a perplexed state in the middle of all this technology, wanting to buy a pack of Brillo pads or something and being totally alienated by the science fiction world that confronts them. If you feel the same way about that, do read this article and do follow this podcast because that's what we're all about. So what can we do? It's all very well for me to sit here saying the complexities of life are terrible and we should extricate them, uh, extricate ourselves from them. But how easy is that to do? Well, uh, the journey towards simplicity starts with you. It doesn't start with anyone else. It doesn't start with somebody doing a podcast. It doesn't do with somebody writing an article. It happens with you. And it's you waking up one morning, or more likely you when you're commuting home from work, or you when you're laying in bed at night trying to get to sleep, just thinking about how you can reduce simple levels of complexity. How you can use a notebook instead of your phone. How you can use maybe an alarm clock instead of an electronic alarm. How you can maybe think of ways in which the building that you live in, the apartment, the house, could be simplified. All sorts of things you can do. Don't forget, one of the most complex things we get involved in is our relationships. And try and work out ways that you can make relationships simple. If they are complicated, they are not good relationships. If your relationship involves dishonesty, if your relationship involves unfaithfulness, if your relationship involves a degree of secrecy, then it's probably not the best relationship and you should be working hard to see what you can do to simplify things there. If you think about the relationship with your children or with your parents, if you have parents still alive, try and keep it simple. Try and make every aspect of your life as simple as you can. Only then can you reap the benefits of that. And as far as technology goes, before you download a new app to your phone, think very carefully about it. We know that in the past, both Google, through Android and Apple, have had to ban apps, especially those coming from China, because they have contained large amounts of coding that nobody at Apple or nobody at Google understands what it's there for or what it's trying to do. And be warned that if you download these apps onto your phone, you are downloading bits of code that nobody understands, except presumably the person that wrote the code. Think about if you need apps to tell you this and to tell you that. Decide if there's a better way to do it, if there's an easier way to do it. Try and strip down your phone until it does functional things like takes phone calls and sends texts. If it's doing a thousand and one other things, do you need to do them all? I don't know. Things to think about. Right. Some of those apps on your phone have to do with social media, something which I'm very bad at because I rarely find enough time in the week to get on social media to do things anyway. So if you have listened to this podcast and you have found some of the things interesting in it, please use social media to tell your friends about it. And I always say, and people don't believe me, 
that even tell people about it that are going to be absolutely annoyed and steam is going to come out their ears when they listen to it because those are good people to engage with. Don't spend all your time engaging with people you agree with. Spend some of your time engaging with people that you disagree with until it becomes abusive and then just walk away. I'd like to leave you with one more quote. It's a little quote heavy this uh, this week's podcast. I apologise for that. For those of you who don't like quotes, you're probably in the wrong place because I love quotes. This is from the Northumbria community. Now, Northumbria community is a Celtic Christian community. Um, and this comes from one of their prayers. Now, if you're not a religious person, that doesn't matter because you can listen to what they're saying anyway. If you're a religious person, you might like to follow it up. And this is what they say. Help me to know the secret of contentment lies in organising the self in the direction of simplicity. Organising the self in the direction of simplicity. That's good, I think. Okay, not too many interruptions from cats today. Um, A fair bit of interruption from my husky puppy here, who was born in September. Her birthday was 9-11. And as it's been snowing since October here, she thinks the world is pretty much made out of snow. But she is a husky pup, so that's not surprising. She is getting on well, and she is getting on well with the cats. The cats usually get to a position of height and look down upon the dog with a sort of perplexed view on their face. One of the things they've got to do, two of the cats are females, and if the dog goes too close to them, they will spit out and wave a paw at him, and he respects that and goes away. The two male cats run away from him, and of course if you run away from a husky, the husky will think he's in for a game and will run after you. (laughs) So one of those techniques is good, and the other technique needs polishing up a little bit. But they are, on the whole, all getting on very well together. We're all looking forward to a time when I can introduce this autumn-born husky in Sweden to the joys of springtime and flowers and butterflies and green grass and long walks and dips in the lake and all those things that are going to make its life so enjoyable. Okay, thank you for joining me today and I look forward to being with you again very, very soon. Goodbye for now.